Well, good morning, church. As multiple people have already indicated, today is the last chapter of this glorious book of Isaiah. Um, if you have your Bible open to that final chapter in Isaiah 66, next week will actually be the final sermon covering the last chapter this Sunday, but our final sermon will be next week as I'll provide sort of a global view, a highlight of where we have been over the last six months um, in this book, actually almost a, almost a year now in this uh, glorious book. And I have sort of mixed feelings as we're wrapping up the book of Isaiah. It has become one of my personal favorites, although I say that about every book that we're in, but I really mean that about Isaiah. It, uh, it, I know why now Old Testament commentators call it the Romans of the Old Testament. The more we've gotten into Isaiah, the more I see the tracings of Isaiah throughout the New Testament. It's a glorious book. I want to remind you that our next sermon series, beginning on June 19th, will be on the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sermon title of Nothing Matters. But what if it did? I've worked with a a team to be able to put together this sermon series over the summer, and I think it's gonna be uniquely helpful. Team of preachers will be Brad and Nate and Jeff and Evan and Greg. And just a heads up, normally I take uh, the month of July off from preaching, and the elders have graciously given me a couple weeks extra on either end to uh, do some writing and some um, studying for our next sermon series coming up in the book of Revelation. So I'll be on site here during the month of July, apart from some family vacation, but be enjoying receiving the word from these brothers. You're in for a treat. And as we've designed the series, I almost feel a little jealous that I don't get to be a part of it. But I'm going to be receiving the word along with you, so I hope you'll be ready for this glorious book. The book of Ecclesiastes is about how to live faithfully in a frustrating world. Anybody feel frustrated with the world right now? Anyone feel a bit confused? The, the, the posture of Ecclesiastes might be a person like pulling their hair out, like for real? Like what in the world? That, that's the posture of Ecclesiastes. The book of Isaiah also has a posture, and it relates to the theme of this entire book from the very beginning, which is our God saves. Our God saves. And let me suggest to you that there are two ways that you can respond to that statement of our God saves. If you're a Christian, I want you to think about your posture about that statement, our God saves. If you're not yet a Christian, Think about your posture to what it means that Jesus has come to offer you salvation. So if, if Ecclesiastes is someone trying to like pull their hair out or what in the world kind of a hand motion, think of this body posture as it relates to Isaiah. We can be marked by humility or haughtiness, by receptivity or resistance by obedience or obstinance. So I want you to think today about where you are right now on this Sunday as it relates to your posture. Do you find yourself ready to receive or do you find yourself ready to resist? 
This has been the theme of Isaiah from the very beginning. Isaiah 1, verse 18, the very first chapter says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Notice, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So think of your posture today as whether or not you're ready to receive or resist, ready to be humble or ready to be haughty. Think of it maybe in terms of um, maybe a football posture. When I, when I think of this, I, I, particularly on resistance, I can't help think of the position of the Heisman Trophy, right, where the person's doing this. I think of that because in college when a young man was rejected by a girl, we told him he got the Heisman, right? So, got the Heisman. So you'd see somebody in the lunch and you're like, hey man, I heard, mm, yeah, I'm sorry, sorry about that. So the question is whether or not you're giving the Lord the Heisman or whether or not you're saying, God, I'm open. I'm open, I'm ready to receive whatever you have today and I wonder what posture you have today. You see, our God saves isn't just a theme for the book of Isaiah. It also represents, folks, a fork in the road. This posture of humility or haughtiness is reflective in how we respond to the invitation that God says, I'm ready to help you. Our God saves is something that every human being must respond to in one way or another. And in our final chapter in this book, we're going to see three portraits, three contrasts. They're not different. They're the exact same thing. I'm just going to put them in different words for you to come to the sign in the road that says our God saves. And the question is, are you going to be humble or haughty? Are you gonna be obedient or obstinate? Are you gonna receive, are you gonna be resistant? So all of us are at this, this sign and you could go one way or the other and Isaiah ends with this call that like you gotta decide, like what side are you on? Is God gonna save you or are you gonna resist him? Or is Jesus gonna be your king or is he gonna be your judge? Like you can't have it both ways, it's either or. Humble or haughty, receive or resist. Obey or be obstinate. There's not a third way, there's only two. So let's unpack this and see what we can learn. First, humble or haughty. Look at verse one. Again we see Isaiah's big view of God. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So this chapter begins with a massively beautiful and elevated picture of God's glory and power. This is a familiar theme, as we'll see next week, throughout the entire book of Isaiah. And this lofty vision of God creates a decision that must be made. Humility or haughtiness all have a reference point, and the central question is, what do you think, not about you, what do you think about God? Because what you think about you is conditioned on what you think about God. If you're not a Christian, you may not even have that thought. You may not even realize that 
Friend, what you think about yourself, what you're good at and what you're proud of and what you take affirmation from and how you let those things either puff you up or make you think that you're somebody, those have theological and spiritual implications. At the root, it relates to what you think of God and what you think of yourself. You see, humility is merely a right response to who God is. Haughtiness is the wrong response to who God is. And both humility and haughtiness are deeply embedded with a theology. What you believe about God will inform what you believe about yourself. And so we see that Isaiah begins with an elevated view of God. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Consider this image. The most lofty other world reality that human beings can consider, heaven, something we don't know about in the skies, limitation of earthly living, God says, that realm is where I sit. And the realm that you live in, the place that you think is the center of the universe emotionally, is the place that I put my feet. Heaven is where I sit, and your world is a footstool for me. God isn't intending to shame human beings, but he is attempting for us to understand who we are and what our place is. This begs the question about how humans engage with God in worship, which is why verse one says, and what is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? It's as though God says, humans, you think you're so amazing, you're gonna build me a place to dwell in? The whole world that you live in is just a place for me to prop up my feet. Verse two, the text tells us that God affirms his role as creator. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So in effect, God says, I am the creator. I own all of it. This is the starting point of everything. It's how our summary of the gospel starts. You've heard us say this many times. If you're not a Christian, let me summarize for you the gospel message in four simple phrases. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, and Christ is my life. And as glorious as Jesus saves and Christ is my life is, it begins with an understanding of who God is. God is holy, and I am not. What follows in verse 2b is the key to the entire chapter. It may be the most important verse of all of chapter 66. It's a theme that repeats itself, so don't miss it. Look at it in your Bible. God is like this. He's exalted. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Verse 2, but this is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's as if God is asking, where should I live? Who should I visit? What person or home fits with my glory? That's the nature of the question. Or children, kids, you're in the room, glad that you're here for the summer. Let me make this clear for you, and moms and dads, listen in, and you'll learn something too. When your teacher says, I'm looking for a helper today, someone who's quiet and listening, 
When a teacher says that to the classroom, he or she is doing two things. Number one, they're trying to control the classroom. And they're doing it by describing the behavior that they're looking for, the model student. I'm looking for a helper today. It's someone who's quiet and listening. That's what's happening here in Isaiah 66. God is saying, where do I look? Who am I looking for? What kind of person do I dwell with? It is he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These three descriptions need a little bit of unpacking because they relate to this issue of whether or not we're humble or haughty. So first, what does the word humble mean? The word humble means that one is not powerful in themselves. It means that they're not powerful in society. That the dominant characteristic of their existence is dependency. They're marked by need. They need, in this case, God. And realize how absolutely antithetical this is to our own culture. Just think of the the Nike um, promo statement, just do it. Christians need another shirt that says, can't. (laughs) Someone needs to develop a marketing campaign that just says, can't, because that's our posture. The faster you realize that you can't make it on your own, the more opportunity you have to receive grace and mercy. Some of you are here today and your whole last week has been God sending you one message over and over and over and over and for some reason you've just not tuned in to the right frequency and that message, whether it's at work or in your relationships or in your health or in kind of how you're doing even mentally and emotionally, that message singularly is this. Listen to me, you can't do this on your own. And that's not throw up your hands and give up. It is that the problem is that we think we got it. When we don't got it, we need Jesus to get it so that we can say, I can't do this. Would you please step in? Humble. Secondly, contrite spirit. This word refers to being crippled, unable to walk on your own. These are the people who not only feel like they can't do it, but they literally can't do it. Like they they can't do it on their own. Everything within our culture goes the opposite direction of this. You, You know, don't you, that in Western American culture, self reliance, self sufficiency is part of the air we breathe. In the last 15 years, now we have the ability for self promotion. We can tell the world how amazing we are through our filtered photos and the things that we decide to show and broadcast. No no one's posting pictures when they first got out of bed this morning. (laughs) And yet God meets with the lowly. He meets with the helpless. Listen, he meets with those who because of their dependency, they constantly feel like they're on the outside of society. Eugene Peterson reflects on this exile perspective and how actually powerful it is. Listen to what he writes. The most effective strategy for change, for revolution, at least on the scale that the kingdom of God involves, comes from a minority working from the margins. 
He writes, I could not have articulated a number of years ago, but my seminary experience later germinated into the embrace of a vocational identity as necessary minority. A minority people working from the margins has the best chance of being a community capable of penetrating the non-community, the mob, and the depersonalized, function-defined crowd that is the sociological norm of America. What does he mean? He means that God moves by people who know they can't. The spiritual state that gets God attention, that gets God's attention, the spiritual state that honors him, the spiritual state that opens the resources of heaven is dependency. So let me caution you that when you get money or influence or power or popularity, be very, very careful Not that those things in and of themselves are evil, but those are the things that in our human society tend to create more self-sufficiency, less God-dependency. As I shared a few weeks ago from Reese Kaufman, the president of Child Evangelism Fellowship, if dependency is my goal, then weakness is an asset. Again, if dependency is my goal, then weakness is an asset. So, humble, contrite, third, trembles at the word. I'm spending more time in this section than the other two because this particular part of uh, Isaiah 66 informs the rest. Trembles at the word, it means that a reverence for God translates into a reverence for God's word. Gary Smith in his commentary on Isaiah says this, they deeply respect what God has said, they take it very seriously, they internalize it and make it a part of their worldview, and then they implement it in their daily walk and thinking. Humble people hear the word, receive the word, and ask themselves, now how do I make this work? Do you know what haughty people do? Haughty people critique the presentation of the word. Haughty people find ways to argue Not be a critical thinker, that's good, but to have a critical spirit. Another word of caution, in our culture of self-reliance and individualism, it doesn't just express itself in terms of pride very publicly, but rather there's another issue that relates to the glut of information that we possess. Christians have never had more access to the most compelling books or to the most articulate sermons than any other generation in the history of Christianity. And as a result, it can cause us to not receive the word as the word. We can be guilty of focusing on communication and style and articulation. You have access to the best sermons. You can hear any sermon in the world. Do you know how intimidating that is for B-rate preachers? Just a little way you could help me and our other pastors. If you heard a great sermon by a compelling preacher last week, just don't tell us on Sunday morning, will you? (laughs) All kidding aside, I'm grateful that we have this wealth of information, but if we're honest, it can have a downside, which is 
because you hear and receive filet mignon all week, you can forget meat is meat. So the question is, what is your posture with the word today? Are you open-handed? Or are you stiff-arming God's word? Is your posture, as you've come in today, hope that's good, hope I can get something out of the sermon, or is your posture, I get to hear the Bible today. Understanding who God is, our God saves, leads to a right understanding of yourself that should then yield a level of humility, contrition, and trembling at the word. So look at verses three and four. Here we see an alternative. We're gonna see this in all three sections. Isaiah identifies something incredible and then shows us the dark side. Rather than embracing humility, the people in God play fast and loose with their spiritual lives and their worship, which is what's going on in verse three. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Now, it's a tough way to understand this. It's a hard text to get a hold of entirely, but what essentially Isaiah is saying here is this, that a man who slaughters an ox in sacrifice is the same guy who kills a man and doesn't see there's any problem between his Sunday sacrifice and his Monday murder. He who sacrifices a lamb is one who like breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like he who presents pig's blood. He who makes memorial of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. What's happening here is they're not taking God seriously, which is why the text says they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Listen, their their disregard for God shows up in their inconsistency. The the poignant message of Isaiah is it's not that the people of God stop worshiping. That's not their problem. No, no, no. Their problem is they just keep worshiping God while while proudly assuming that the rest of their life doesn't matter to God. That's why we have the word like there. It's similar to what Isaiah said in chapter 1 and verse 15 where he chides the people. He says, you spread out your hands to pray even though your hands are full of blood. So let's get real. If we're honest, the way that Christians promote their haughtiness is subtle inconsistency. If we're honest, the danger for most Christians is not a lack of activity. Most of us know how to show up. Most of us know how to put it on. We know how to look the part and talk it up. The problem for the people of God isn't our presence on Sunday, it's our pretense on Monday. And that's why chapter 66, verse three says, they have chosen their own ways, their soul delights in their abominations, this haughtiness then opens the door for divine discipline because in their pride they refused to listen and it put them on the wrong side of God. So again, this this whole book is about our God saves. Which way are you gonna go? Humble or haughty? Receive or resist? Obey or be obstinate? 
Second, are you going to be receptive or are you going to be resistant? Verse five, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who will be put to shame. So what's happening here? The next contrast relates to whether or not God's people are ready to receive what God has in store for them or whether they'll be resistant for what God has in mind. The question that you have to wrestle with, I have to wrestle with, am I okay, am I okay with God's plan for my life or do I want my plan? Am I willing to receive God's providence, even the hard stuff, or am I gonna resist that providence and say in effect to God, look, you owed me a different life. And in so doing, I verify that I'm not humble, I'm haughty, because I have a wonderful plan for my life, and I wanna add God to my plans. I don't want my plan to fit into the plan of God. So in, first, in the first case, in verse five, there's a bruising God's plan involves sometimes receiving bruising. He speaks to those who are trembling at his word, and then he says, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake. He's referring to the fact that there are some who receive persecution. Their godliness has resulted in them being persecuted by their own people. Ray Orland in his commentary puts words into the persecutor's mouths. Here's what he says that they would say. You always say that you want to glorify and enjoy God, so let us help you. Let's see how joyful you are when we show you the door. So there's this reality that what it means to follow Jesus often involves either people showing you the door or they find the door and walk out on you. And the question that God's people have to wrestle with is, like, are you okay with a hard life? Are you okay with not having everyone speak well of you? Are you okay with having difficulties and challenges because you've named the name of Christ? So the text continues. Verse six, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. So the idea is this, look, I'm gonna take care of judgment, you just need to live righteously. Are you willing to receive hardship and trust that God knows what he's doing? That's the question. So there's bruising, also will you receive blessing? Verses seven through 14, we get a glimpse of the glory that God wants to give to his people and the joy of their existence that they're going to experience. He says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. It's like the reverse of the curse of the garden, that suddenly now this multiplication and birth is taking place, not physically, but it means spiritually, that God is raising up a people for himself. Look at verse nine. It's conditioned on the very sovereign power that God possesses. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Says the Lord, shall I, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? He's asking his people, do you trust me? Can you rest in my plan? Some of you today, the thought that you need to just get into your soul today is this, is is your posture as it relates to the will of God open-handed or closed-handed? Ready to receive or resist? Is it humble or is it haughty? 
Some of us are so frustrated at times that things aren't working out according to our plan that we've actually forgotten that God is the one who sits in heaven with his feet up on earth, not us. You may have a wonderful plan for your life, but it's not nearly as good as the plan that God has for your life. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad for her, and all who love her, rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. So the idea is God is going to extend blessing and joy upon his people. They'll be flourishing in his kingdom. Look at verse 12. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. The idea is there's this realm of God's blessing and his empowerment offered to God's people if they will just receive this beautiful kingdom. And then notice the contrast again. Skip ahead to verse 15. Another Judgment text, for behold, the Lord God will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So the idea is that God's gonna take care of those who are resistant. Why don't you just receive? Why don't you receive the grace that he intends for hard moments? It's why Jesus said, blessed are you, when all men speak poorly of you. Blessed are you when you're reviled for my sake. Rejoice and be glad because your life on earth is gonna be easy. No, what did he say? He said rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's the problem for some of us. We don't want a reward in heaven. We want it now. We want popularity, we want affirmation, we want people to like us. And the fact of the matter is, if everyone likes you and you're a Christian, there's a problem. Now, I'm not calling for you to go out and be a cantankerous Christian. No, no one should make their life verse. Beware when all men speak well of you. Don't make that your life verse. <laughs> but I do wonder if many of us, including myself, are sometimes way too enamored with the approval of others. We forget the importance of the approval of God. Listen to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. If you wanna write down a verse or two that you could look up later, just listen to this verse, Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. The writer of Hebrews says this, see that you do not, do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the same time, his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now listen to what the point is. The writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Hear it? Humble or haughty, receive or resist. Finally, obedient or obstinate. Again, the book of Isaiah, our God saves. It's a decision, one way or the other. Which way are you gonna go? When you put your trust in Christ, Christian, for the first time, you made a definitive decision. I'm gonna receive Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And then every day after that, 
You live in light of that decision. No, I received Jesus. Why do I think I can't? I can't do it. Jesus has to help me. You you apply that in your life. It's not that you get saved over and over and over, but you incorporate the benefits and the glories of that major shift when you were born again, that your life is now God's holy. I'm not Jesus saves and Christ is my life. My life isn't my life. Christ is my life. And anything that reminds you of that is your helper whether it's cancer or relationship conflict or difficulty or persecution, the thing that's hard in your life helps you to be reminded that my king sits in heaven and the earth is his footstool. I can't do this unless he helps me. So therefore, I'm gonna be humble, not haughty. I'm gonna receive, not resist. I'm gonna be obedient. I'm not gonna be obstinate. Verse 18 For I know their works and their thoughts. Think of this. God looks from heaven right now and he knows who in hearing this sermon is legit and who's not. He knows. I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming. He knows where his people are all over the planet to gather all nations and tongues. And notice that the evidence that they're real is not just their belief, but what they've done with their belief. Doesn't mean that people are saved by their works, of course not, but it does mean that their works, what they do, verify that what they believe is real. If you're married, Your faithfulness verifies that those vows mean something. You can't separate your actions from what you promised. In the same way that's true as it relates to our relationship with Christ. It means that obedience is not optional. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that the sum total of our life is, I want to follow Jesus. The other path looks like, I want God to leave me alone. I don't want him to tell me what to do. I don't want to have him instruct me. So verse 18, I know their works, their thoughts, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they will come and see my glory and I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish and Pul and Lud and who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame and see my glory. Isaiah looks over human history and he sees the way in which the gospel spreads and people hear the good news of Jesus in these lands and God calls them from all over the earth and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And then verse 20, it's amazing. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord instead of bringing in to the city of Jerusalem lambs and goats and oxen, there's this now massive stream of people from every tribe and nation and tongue streaming into the presence of the king and kings and lord of lords and the offering are not animals but the very people who have been redeemed over whose banner flies the flag, our God saves and they're marching to Zion they're marching to Zion it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? he says in verse 20 
on horses and in chariots and litters, on mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as Israel brings their grain offering, just as the Israelites brought their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Some of them who aren't even Jewish are gonna be made priests. And then the text concludes, here it is. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. The idea is God's people dwell with him forever from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. Notice the worship here, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. It's a glorious image of the redeemed of the Lord who have been brought into his kingdom. The people who God has saved is now standing before him, worshiping him in purity and truth. The obedient, those, those who have obeyed, not because they did it, because God did it in them, are now standing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a glorious image. And there's also a dark side. Verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched, and there shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And that is how Isaiah ends. And why shouldn't it? Because the glory of God is so majestic and righteous and pure and lovely that to gaze upon it is not only the highest privilege, it is the most glorious thing that you could ever do and it is the thing that God redeemed you for so that you could see that glory. But listen to me, if you're on the wrong side of that glory with no covering of sin, with no forgiveness in Christ, with no righteousness given to you because of who Jesus is, that is the most dangerous place to be in all of the world. And so what we see at the end of the book of Isaiah is the contrast between humble and haughty, between receiving and resisting, between obedient and obstinate. We see the difference between heaven and hell. There's a fork in the road. Isaiah ends with the same choice that he began with when he called God's people, stop your fake worship. You spread out your hands, they're full of blood. And yet God says, I'm, I'm ready to make you clean. You know, your sins are like scarlet. You can be white as snow today if you would come to the decision point of our God saves and say, God, I'm broken. I need your mercy. I receive Christ. I wanna make him king of kings and lord of lords of my soul. You head down that path, there's all kinds of mercy and grace. The other path to resist and say, no, I don't want that. I don't need that. I'm not as bad as everybody else. I got lots of people that I'm better than. Yeah, you go down that road and you're on the wrong side of God's glory and Isaiah invites us with this singular message. Our God is ready to save. So who's in? Humble? or haughty, ready to receive or resist, ready to obey or be obstinate. A glorious God invites sinful people to come to him to receive mercy and grace that they so desperately need. So what path are you on today? Humble, haughty? 
Receiving, resisting, obedient, obstinate? Why not open your heart for the first time if you're not a Christian and come to Jesus today? And for those of you who are Christians, can I remind you, this is what you, say, you, you signed up for. It is that your life belongs to Jesus. He saved you. He bought you. You belong to him. He's gonna keep you and help you. Help you finish strong all the way to the end. As long as you remember, I can't do it without you helping me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want you to come and to complete the plan of redemption. Lord, we want you to, even now, minister grace in ways that we not only need, but in some ways we actually can be resistant. So I pray for Christians today who've come and it's been a bad week, a bad week at lots of levels. Thank you that there's grace and mercy available, that you've already forgiven sins that we've committed in the past, the present, and the future. Our identity is sure and fixed, and so we can come in joyful celebration of our identity in Christ. And if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. So we come today again and again saying, God, I can't do this. I need you to help me. And Lord, for those who have yet to become Christians, would you make today a day of decision, a fork in the road where someone would say today on June 5th, 2022 is the day that I came and put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, let today be the day where they would say, my God saved me. We pray this in the name of our King of Kings, the one who is going to return, and we can't wait. In Jesus' name. All of God's people said together, amen.